Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support, as always. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee, and certainly for way less than the cost of what I spent on aviation fuel last week, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. So that's $5 Canadian a month, inflation-proof. It's not changing. You get twice as many episodes from us, more train tangents, which I hope you love them just as much as us, and a lot of interesting failures that are kind of quirky or don't necessarily fit the format of our regular episodes we cover on on that segment of the show. If you want to check it out but are unsure, if you go to our website, you can see a list of all of the mini failures that we've done so far. And as of this episode, I think we have 35 over there. So there's there's quite a backlog to pull from if you wanted to to sign up and kind of blitz through them all. So please check us out on our weird little corner of the internet. On to the engineering news or things that we found interesting in the last week or so that we have decided to share with you on this episode. And this week, we are going to talk about harvesting fresh water from the ocean surface. If you've ever looked at a globe, there's a lot of blue on the globe, which is the water part of the Earth. So when oceans evaporate, as I'm sure many of you know, it leaves the salt behind, creating freshwater vapor in the air above. A study from the University of Illinois' Urbana-Champaign campus, which is 200 kilometers south of Chicago, suggests new infrastructure to harvest the ocean water vapor as a solution to freshwater supply shortages, which, as we've all been aware of over the last decades or multiple decades, freshwater eventually is going to be in a little short supply. There's some drought stuff going on. The world population has increased substantially, so things like freshwater are going to be in short supply in a lot of countries. The study looked at 14 water-stressed regions globally and found they could feasibly capture oceanic water vapor as a solution. One of the stronger projections of climate change is that humid areas will get more humid and drier areas will become increasingly drier. But the projections also show that oceanic vapor will continue to increase, so this solution is more robust to climate change than some other solutions. Also, we've tried a number of other approaches already, wastewater recycling, conservation, cloud seeding, which I actually think is kind of cool for hail mitigation, but that's a separate topic. One we should cover on a future episode, though. Oh, it will actually, if we do it, it will involve airplanes, which I think is super cool. It's kind of a marvel, though. Well, I don't know. Hail's pretty destructive. We'll circle back. We'll brainstorm that. We'll bring that to you in a future episode. We'll figure that one out. So we've tried a whole bunch of techniques. Most of them haven't worked out super well. Maybe kind of some temporary relief. They're barely inadequate. Don't seem to be as good as harvesting freshwater. This is a really interesting solution to the lack of freshwater. And it's one that I haven't seen floated around yet. If you want to read more about the freshwater harvesting, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. This week's episode of Failureology is brought to you by CRISPR. Not the genetic engineering technique, but your vegetable crisper. Actually, this isn't a sponsor. It's a PSA. You should probably clean out your vegetable crisper. There's definitely a cucumber or box of mixed greens you bought last week or last month or last year that needs to go. We're not here to judge. We can't see your fridge. We won't even know whether you clean it out or not, but you'll probably feel better if you do. 
Now on to this week's engineering failure, the Fernie Arena ammonia leak. I think this one is the closest to home we've come with any of the failures we've covered to date. And while this is a tragic story, arenas are a huge part of Canadian culture, especially in small towns. So we're talking about this leak today in hopes that it prevents another similar incident from occurring. Did you skate when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I'm still not very good at it, but I can I can do it. I'm actually surprised they haven't taken away my, my Canadian citizenship. I can't stop really at all on hockey skates. You're what we call a Bambi. Yeah, I, I'm certainly not making the NHL at any point, probably because I'm too old. But there's definitely eight-year-old kids that can like skate much faster than I can and are way better at skating. So I don't even like maple syrup, so I'm pretty sure I get my citizenship taken away if, if like one more Canadian thing. How did you even get a passport? I, I was very polite, so they're like, oh, this this guy must be Canadian, so we'll, we'll give him a passport, despite those other two things. Oh, that's funny. So I, I never played hockey, but I figure skated from 3 to 12. So I spent a lot of time in arenas, and I mean, I obviously didn't start this way at 3 years old, but at the peak, just before I stopped, I was going for one to two hours each time, four times a week. So I was spending eight to 10 hours a week at the arena, which was just a lot of time. And even more when we were doing carnivals at the end of the season. So I, I've definitely spent a lot of time in arenas. And I mean, I don't know the statistics. I can't 100% guarantee this, but I would say almost every, if not every small town in Canada has an arena. Yeah, I, I've been to some small towns where there might be 400 people in the town and they have an arena and also an outdoor rink. Outdoor rinks, for anyone that's not familiar with Canadian geography, are a big thing in Canada. It gets very cold for, I'm going to say, at least six months of the year. So a lot of communities will set up hockey boards and a lot of time lights, and then they'll basically flood the ground within the boards and they'll make a hockey rink. And some of those rinks, people will be playing. They'll be busy essentially 24 hours a day in in some communities. It, to me, it's a, it's one of those things of Canadian winter culture. Like there's always outdoor rinks and they're always busy. People are always skating or playing hockey. It's uh, I guess it would kind of be like a basketball court or a soccer pitch in, in much warmer climates. Also, if you're listening to this and you live in Calgary or visit Calgary, there are also ice trails in North Glenmore and Bones Park. There are essentially pathways of ice that you can skate along, which are just much more interesting when you want to do just a leisurely skate. You're not just going in a circle. You're following this meandering path. And they're really cool. At night, they light up and there's different bonfires going on and there's people skating. And it's really cool. I've been, I, the ice isn't great, but who cares? It's still cool. And I think they do that as well over in the Netherlands or Denmark, where, the, where they freeze all the canals in the winter, and they'll kind of have a nice skating surface set up. And I believe Rideau Canal in Ottawa, capital of Canada, not Toronto, Ottawa is actually the capital of Canada. They also do the same thing where they have these these big skating trails on uh, on the canals. Yes, Toronto is the capital of Ontario, but not of Canada. Anyways, back to Fernie. Fernie is located in Southeast British Columbia, or BC as we lovingly call it. And it's located about 200 kilometers south and 100 kilometers west of Calgary. It's about a three-hour drive from here to Fernie, depending on the roads. And there's also some phenomenal skiing and snowboarding there, as well as hiking and other things. The city of Fernie has a population of just over 5,000 people, with about 7,000 in the metro area. 
And it's the only city-class municipality in Canada that is fully encircled by the Rocky Mountains. Kind of a pretty cool claim to fame. It's a really pretty city. Really pretty, yeah. I've been to Fernie a few times, and I've actually been to this arena, I think. It's been a while, but as I was researching this, it kind of was coming back to me. I'm pretty sure I was there to watch a hockey game, which I'm guessing would have been the Fernie Ghost Riders, who's a junior B team. And although it's been a while, my memory is fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure that's what I was there for. I'm just hoping that the Fernie Ghost Riders were named after the F-14 that Goose and Maverick fly in the original Top Gun. Um, If you've seen the original Top Gun, when they uh, request a flyby of the tower and they get denied, I believe the line is like negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. So I'm hoping that uh, somebody was inspired by that movie and named the hockey team, the Junior B hockey team in Fernie after that. On the way to Fernie, you'll also pass through this really small town of Frank, Alberta, which was destroyed in a landslide about 120 years ago. And while the story of Frank is more of a geoscience failure than an engineering one, it's still really, really interesting. So for those of you who are on our Patreon, stay tuned for the next mini failure because we're going to talk about Frank's slide. Check it out. The Fernie Memorial Arena, where this ammonia leak occurred, is located right in the middle of town off of Highway 3, and Highway 3 is commonly known as Crow's Nest Highway, and like Nicole mentioned, it goes through an area of the province, both provinces, I guess, kind of called the Crow's Nest Pass. Makes sense, Crow's Nest Highway, Crow's Nest Pass. And the arena site, it's an entire city block, and it also houses the curling rink as well as the community center. The city of Fernie under their leisure services department, owns and operates the rink, as well as its ice-making equipment. The arena itself is over 50 years old and has a compressor room between the arena and the curling rink that houses the refrigeration equipment that makes ice for the entire complex. The compressor room has a main room where most of the equipment is located, an entrance room to the southeast that is separated from the main room by a steel mesh wall with a lockable door, and a northeast entrance for controls and emergency showers. On the southwest side of the main room, there is another set of double doors that were sealed and bolted shut when the leak that we're going to talk about occurred. Um, Just for reference, there are three emergency stop buttons for the refrigeration system, one located in the northwest vestibule, one at the southeast exit, and one outside that connects to an emergency discharge valve and a vent stack. So just to recap, there is one large room that houses all of the chiller plant or the refrigeration equipment for both the arena and the curling rink. And there are only two doors in and out of there and a few different emergency stop buttons. And a lot of the information we're talking about today comes from a WorkSafe BC report that was done on this failure. And in that report, there is a drawing of the room. So you can see what the layout of the room looked like, which was very helpful for me to visualize what exactly was going on. So before we get into this, we're not going to get super technical, but I do want to talk a little bit about ice making basics. And before I get into this, I'm just going to say I am not a refrigeration engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer, yes, but this is a specialty that I don't normally dive into. I have worked on a couple arena projects, but not on the ice plant itself, more on the, the ventilation and the plumbing for other parts of the arena. And I've also toured the Saddle Dome, which was pretty cool. So I've seen its chiller plant. So I'm basing this explanation on my light experience in chiller plants for arenas and also from what information I was able to find in the WorkSafe BC report. So in order to make ice, a chiller plant pulls all the heat out of the brine water or salt water. 
the salt in the water allows it to be much colder than zero degrees Celsius before freezing. I don't know the standard brine concentration, but just as an example, a 23.3% salt concentration has a freezing point of minus 21 degrees Celsius. So the more salt you put in, the lower the temperature you can go before that brine mixture freezes. There's probably a, a sweet spot of how much concentration of salt you want versus the temperature of the water that they would design the system to. The brine water is then pumped through a series of pipes within the concrete slab below the arena ice pad. And when the slab is cold enough, the concrete slab that is, they flood the top of the slab with water and that water freezes because that's just regular tap water, if you will. Depending on the use of the ice surface, whether it's general skating, hockey, figure skating, etc., the ice temperature and the way they layer the flooding water to create the ice are all different. And there's very specific science to it that I'm not even going to begin to unpack. This is just a generalized explanation on my understanding of how ice is made. As the brine water circulates through the concrete, it picks up heat. So the concrete rejects its heat into the brine water. The chiller plant then uses refrigerant to reject that heat outside, cool that brine water back down and send it out through the concrete again. So that brine water is just cycling between the loops in the concrete slab and the chiller. It's picking up heat while it goes underneath the concrete slab, rejecting that heat at the chiller plant and going back out again. There's a bunch of different types of refrigerants that are used in this process. Some are a lot better than others. I recently went to a presentation on, it was actually on high temp heat pumping, which is completely not related to this, but there was a bit of a discussion at the end about different refrigerants, which was really interesting. Different refrigerants, obviously they have different properties and different performance characteristics, which make them good and bad for different applications or different types of chilling that they're needed for. And then some of them also have other effects such as greenhouse gas effects, or in this case, ammonia was used at this arena and ammonia is very, very toxic to humans. And there are a lot of other refrigerants that are toxic to humans as well. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. Throughout the course of my career, I've dealt with a number of different refrigerants for the chiller plants that we put in buildings to create cooling and air conditioning for those spaces. And a lot of the older ones continually get phased out due to those environmental concerns that I mentioned. I believe that ammonia is or was fairly common for arena refrigerant due to its ability to get those colder temperatures of the brine water. And I believe it also has a fairly low greenhouse gas effect. But like I mentioned, ammonia is highly toxic to humans and it's a reactive substance that's also corrosive, flammable, and explosive under certain circumstances. So that's why there's all those emergency stops. That's why there's the vent stack. And that's why this accident was as tragic as it was. But luckily, ammonia is not the only option. Several arenas throughout Canada and probably other parts of the world have been working to phase out ammonia in these small town arenas as a way to make these plants more safe. As we get into the sequence of events, I just want to preface this by saying that there's a lot of things going on. And even though even though we read through the WorkSafe BC report, it's a lot. So we did our best to summarize it and to keep it straightforward, but bear with us. So on the day of the incident, the curling rink chiller had been in operation for approximately 30 years which suggests that it was probably not part of the original building. As this complex was about 50 years old, 
the average life from what we can understand of a chiller is about 20 to 25 years. So it's a fairly, to me, this sounds like a fairly good life for, you know, a plant that especially in Canada is going to be working quite a bit to, to make ice for curling surfaces and rink surfaces. With the way it's going these days with refrigerants, uh, like Nicole mentioned, all of these refrigerants, they change quite quickly. Um, so you'll likely want to upgrade in that time frame just to be able to easily purchase replacement refrigerant when you do repairs, which, as we all know, things break down, you got to fix them. If you can't put in your refrigerant, then you have bigger issues and you may have to replace your entire system. So what happens is if you you have an issue on your chiller plant and there's a there's a let's say there's a leak on the refrigerant side, you capture all that refrigerant into canisters, you repair the system and then you recharge it with that refrigerant. But because there's been a leak, you usually don't have enough refrigerant to fully charge the system. And so maybe you have 90% of what you need, but if your refrigerant's no longer available, you can't buy more for that little bit of top up. And so at that point, you either stockpile refrigerant before it gets fully phased out or you have to upgrade your system to a refrigerant you can get that said ammonia is still available at least they would have been able to get it starting in 2010 the refrigeration mechanics contracted to service the chiller plants had flagged that the chiller was past its life expectancy and should be replaced even though a master plan was developed in 2013 to undergo significant capital upgrades the work was expected to be completed over a seven-year period and the city was continuing with maintenance until the plant could be replaced. Seems pretty standard to me. Seems like a good idea. Can't do this whole replacement right away. People still need to play hockey and do the curling. Yeah, this is really common, not just with chiller plants, but in a, a lot of things. They're not cheap. If it's working, a lot of people try to keep it going until they can get funds in order to replace it or until they're absolutely forced to replace it. The challenge with this is that additional assessments are needed to make sure that you're handling and managing risk appropriately and worker safety is also being managed so these these accidents don't happen. And that doesn't appear to have happened here. But this is kind of like when you drive a used car and you've just paid it off, ideally you have no maintenance and so it's great. But eventually it starts getting older and older and it costs you more every year to upkeep the car. And over time, that cost starts to, you start to weigh that cost against the cost of get, buying a new car or buying a new used car. And eventually, the scales tip such that keeping this old car is not as financially advantageous as it would be if you just bought a new car. And so figuring out where that tipping point is, is, is challenging because no one has a crystal ball. So so I'm I'm not surprised, I'm not surprised that they tried to keep the chiller plant running as long as they could. But I'm really disappointed at the lack of worker safety and risk assessment that didn't happen here because this accident was preventable. Throughout 2015 and up until the leak in October 2017, further discussions were had about replacing the plant. The city obtained several quotes and they did some maintenance. They replaced some individual components, replaced them, or I guess rebuilt them, just to make sure that the plant could keep running and keep providing ice for hockey and figure skating and curling and whatever else needed ice in the arena. Over this time, though, periodic ammonia leaks occurred. Some triggered the monitoring systems, some did not. The sensors were replaced, settings were adjusted, and various other repairs were completed in the arena. In April 2017, the plant was shut down for the summer, the ammonia was pumped out into a receiver, and the operators there noted a smell of ammonia that was not normal. 
The brine water was tested for ammonia, which the ammonia in the brine loops should be completely separate. Um, and so there shouldn't be any cross-contamination with brine water in the ammonia or ammonia in the brine water. The chiller is somewhat like a heat exchanger. It's got ammonia circulating through one side and it's got the brine water circulating through the other. But, but those two sides are separated. And so... It's really easy to tell if you have a break in that separation when you see the one fluid on the other side because it's not it's not supposed to be there. So that's to me an immediate indication that there's a problem. Yeah, it would be like in your car if, you know, say radiator fluid got mixed with oil or you know, oil mixes with gasoline. It's like those should all be essentially completely separate. They shouldn't contaminate each other, but if you find the presence of of a different fluid in one of the fluids, that's probably cause for concern. You probably want to get your car checked out at, at that point. So in this case, they found 3,320 parts per million of ammonia in the brine water, as well as higher than normal iron levels at 31 parts per million. The recommended concentration of the ammonia in the brine water is zero ppm, so they've exceeded this by quite a bit. And the range for iron is 10 parts per million. So this suggests, um, as we discussed, that there's a leak somewhere between the two systems. A second brine water sample was taken in August 2017 and found 1,830 parts per million of ammonia and 61.5 parts per million of iron in the brine water. There was another discussion about replacement of the old equipment, but no action was taken. Throughout 2016, the compressors were making some strange noises, which is never something you want to hear from mechanical things. Yeah, I, I mean, I've never worked on an ice plant, but to me, when you see this type of cross-contamination, this is a full stop because there are components within the ammonia side that the brine water just doesn't intermix well with that can cause further damage. And so usually when something like this happens, you shut the plant down and it's done until you can fix it, which it sounds like is not going to happen here. And you probably at this point need replacement. Also, it's, you know, you found the leak in April. So you're at the end of your season. If you really hustled, you've got time to at least make a good try at replacing the chiller. I mean, it's a bit tight to do a design and turn around that fast, but you could try. So they didn't, they just ignored it from what we can tell. We don't know what was going on in the background, only what this report told us, but it seems like they did nothing from April to August, tested it again, still had a problem, didn't turn it off again then either. And I also don't understand how the noises and obvious leaks were ignored for so long. I mean, seven years before the leaks started to happen, they were told that the chiller should be replaced and they just kept ignoring it, which is frustrating. So on the day of the leak at 3.52 a.m. on October 17th, the monitoring company received an ammonia alarm for the compressor room and the fire department was called to the arena. Workers for the arena met them on site, presumably contacted by the monitoring company as well. When firefighters entered the compressor room with breathing apparatuses on, the warning lights were flashing and they detected 300 parts per million of ammonia from their handheld devices. At 4.24 a.m., so about half an hour later, the workers and fire department re-entered the compressor room to shut down the curling rink equipment using local controls and valves within the room. They opened the southeast door to provide extra ventilation and tried to reset the ammonia alarm, but it kept coming back on. Which isn't surprising because I don't think they actually addressed the source of the leak. At 4.48 a.m., so another half hour later, a refrigeration mechanic called his supervisor and told him that the curling rink plant was off, but they were going to try and restart the arena plant. 
The arena workers told the fire department that the curling rink would likely be down for the season, that they would lock up, and that the fire department was free to go. At 5.09 a.m., the arena worker was contacted by the alarm company. He advised them the fire department was on site, but unfortunately didn't mention that they were leaving, and he told the alarm company to disregard alarms for the next two hours. I'm just going to pause here for a second to say, while this did turn out to be a bad idea, this is not entirely uncommon when you have people on site trying to fix an issue such as this leak, having the alarm company call them every 15 minutes to tell them there's a leak that they already know about and already trying to fix isn't necessarily helpful. There's definitely situations where you're doing fire alarm testing, where you've got people throughout the building who are setting off various parts of the fire alarm. They'll call the alarm company ahead and say, hey, take the fire alarm offline. We're going to be doing testing today. But at the same time, there's also a ton of people there. So if something really does happen, they can react. So it's almost, we call it fire watch. So that part didn't happen here. They didn't have people who were necessarily monitoring the ammonia levels and making sure that the workers were safe, which is really unfortunate. And I think the alarm company potentially thought that the fire department was still going to be on site and the arena worker also likely misunderstood the the dangerousness of this situation. At 5.18 a.m., the refrigeration mechanic told their supervisor over the phone that the gas compressors were not working and the oil was foamy. The supervisor noted that there was brine water in the oil and ordered replacement oil and a set a plan in motion to have it replaced. So that's one of the consequences of that brine water coming into the ammonia side is now it's contaminated all the oil and the oil needs to be replaced. But that doesn't fix the fact that the brine water can still come over to that side. So that's just a band-aid. It's not really addressing the actual problem, which is that you have a break in the separation between the ammonia and the brine water. At 7.31 a.m., the two hours to disregard alarms had expired and the arena worker responded that they needed until 4 p.m. to complete repairs and no dispatches should occur until then. At 9.03 a.m., the refrigeration mechanic sent to replace the oil arrived on site. As per the report, he had not been told about the earlier ammonia leaks, only about the oil replacement, so he was definitely left in the dark about what had been going on here. Which is kind of surprising because normally this type of thing, especially in a small town, there's a lot of gossip and people like to chit chat. So I'm surprised that, and maybe it just wasn't documented. I'm surprised that the arena workers wouldn't have mentioned to him about all the crazy things that had happened that day, especially since they'd been on site since about 3 a.m. The last outgoing call from the three workers, the two arena workers and the refrigeration mechanic, was at 9.27 a.m. Despite a strong smell of ammonia two blocks away, the cleaning staff who were inside the arena claim they didn't smell ammonia at the time. That seems pretty suspect to me. Um, Ammonia has an incredibly strong smell. Like even if you don't recognize or don't know what ammonia smells like, your eyes would likely be watering. And if, you know, in an investigation, if somebody was like, did you smell anything that was not normal? Um, I feel like you would describe ammonia even if you didn't know the name of it. Yeah, I'm not really sure what happened there. It could, I know that the plant or the compressor room and the arena, even if they were part of the same structure, were definitely separated and they certainly don't share a ventilation system. So you may not have any passageways for the ammonia to transfer into the building if the wind was blowing just the right way. I mean, it's not impossible, but it does seem kind of weird. I don't know. 
Unfortunately, those three workers were not found until 12.45 p.m. when an electrician arrived to complete work at the facility. He went around to the compressor room and found the workers on the floor. At 1 p.m., the fire department arrived again. They obtained readings of 400 parts per million of ammonia in the compressor room and evacuated the arena. Due to rising ammonia readings at 2.07 p.m., the fire department evacuated the area surrounding the arena. So they ended up evacuating part of the town because the ammonia concentration was so strong. So as you probably expected, there was an investigation into this incident. WorkSafe BC completed an investigation and the report provided a lot of the information for our research for this episode. They noted the following causes of the week. Uh, number one, efforts to restart both the arena plant and curling rink plant should not have occurred after finding high concentrations of ammonia in the brine water after the spring shutdown earlier that year. Additionally, the hole between the brine and ammonia circuits, which was reflected in the ammonia concentration in the brine water, subjected the brine piping to a much higher pressure than was allowable and created a large pipe failure and the subsequent leak. So it was discovered through the course of the investigation that the welding method used by the chiller manufacturer created welded seams that were highly susceptible to corrosion in the presence of chloride such as the calcium chloride brine that was used at the arena. The welded chiller tubes were only designed to handle an aqueous brine, which is obviously not what's been used here. It's unclear though from the investigation if this limitation was known during the design or if the brine solution was changed at some point. And both of those could be possible. As we mentioned, this is a fairly old um, you know, facility. It's, you know, the facility's 50 years old, the chiller plant somewhere in the 30-year range of things. So this could have been things that were discovered later on as other plants failed, or you know, there was other, you know, testing that had gone on. Or over the ensuing years, somebody just could have swapped the brine solution without knowing um what the limitations were on the on the welding i've i've seen projects where things like this happen and it, it's not really i mean ultimately i guess it is somebody's fault but you know it's not a malicious thing or you know it wasn't you know poorly designed it's just over 30 years things change and there's different information that that's available and i feel like we've gotten a little bit better actually quite a bit better at material sciences over the last 50 years also, to be completely fair, before researching this, I just had assumed all brines were the same because I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't deal with them. They're just salt water, right? But apparently not. And so I think it's very plausible that someone just didn't realize the difference. And had there not been so many other issues, that may not have been such a catastrophic problem. But like we see on so many of these failures is that all these little things start to pile up until, you know, the pin drops and then they, they're they all part of the problem. And so I think that's, that's just what happened here. The city of Fernie did not have a process to address or assess the potential safety hazards of the aging equipment during startup or shutdown. The refrigeration service company also didn't provide direction or caution against restarting the chiller plants, but rather recommended additional monitoring. The incident response measures were not present, resulting in workers not wearing protective equipment, and the fire department was sent away. The monitoring company was told to ignore further alarms. These were things that were listed in the WorkSafe BC report. We're certainly not making claims all on our own. These are, these are things that were flagged in that report. I think out of all of these issues, the one that bothers me the most is the lack of safety protocol. The fact that there were no breathing apparatuses on site. The fact that the workers were not instructed to wear them or take extra precaution because of the leak that had occurred 
to me, it seems like they didn't understand the risks they were undertaking by going inside this room. I'm sure at no point would any of those workers think this was worth it to try to restart the chiller plant. Like, that's ridiculous. They clearly didn't understand the risks that that they were taking. But I also don't think that's necessarily their fault. Were they given the training to understand the risks? Did they have the tools? I don't know. It doesn't seem like they did. And so that's really unfortunate. And that's why we wanted to tell this story. It it feels weird, honestly, talking about this because it's so close to home. But I think this is really, really important because people need to understand how dangerous these chiller plants can be and take the safety precautions needed to not have this happen again. This was completely preventable. And it's really unfortunate. Luckily, the chiller plant has been replaced with a chiller that has a synthetic refrigerant and the arena reopened for the 2018-2019 season. So after the accident, those chillers were done and they never tried to turn them back on again, which is what they should have done from the beginning. This was not worth it. This was not this was not worth it to save money on the chiller replacement. They should have just replaced it. I'm not. This really grinds my gears. So there you have it. Aging equipment, ignored operating issues, and a lack of safety policies led to the ammonia leak in October 2017 and the unfortunate loss of three lives. This accident, like pretty much all of the other ones we've discussed, was entirely preventable. It sure was. For photos, sources, and an episode summary for this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. We also include all of the sources for our research, and that includes the WorkSafe BC report. So if you want to check that out, there's a link on our website. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or if you're on our Patreon page, you can message us right on there. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. And thank you to everyone for listening. We always appreciate your support. And tune into the next episode, which is episode 70. If you've been with us for a while, you know that every 10th episode, we cover an engineering marvel instead of a failure. It's just a fun way to keep things light and talk about the cool things that go on in the engineering world. So for this marvel, we're going to talk about one of the American Civil Engineering Society's seven wonders of the engineering world, the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's actually really interesting. I say that all the time. Some of these things you go into and you think, eh, whatever, it's a bridge. But it's actually really interesting how it came to be. I mean, the Golden Gate Bridge was built, I think, in 1927. So it's a long time ago. Anyways, more on that next time. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>